He's always been known as that young guy from Sydney who established a wine brand in the midst of the vine pool scheme. And he's gone on to do whatever it takes to promote the Barossa, including adapting and adopting yabbies as temporary UK pets. There's the story, Charlie Melton. Well, that's a really great idea. I'm going to make my biscuits the same way. And all of a sudden, you've got a regional food story that's just been born. For honey biscuits, and uh, please don't ask me to do it in German. <laughs> and I think when we look back in 20 years' time and say, wow, that was really something supported Dragon three times, mental as anything, the choir boys, the angels, the divinals. He'd miss the ball and I have to explain to him, no, you can't re-hit it. The <laughs> great live Yabby event of 1996. Dog in the back of the boat that was being fed meat pies on the way over. <laughs> Nothing awkward about that, man. But please, call me Dave. It's just us. The stories of Barossa told by Barossans. Hosted by the vintage whisperer, winemaker and aspiring actor Stuart Bourne. With wine educator, marketing director and complete new import legend to the Barossa, Amanda Longworth. And why the hell does every Barossan, except me, have a yabby story? And welcome Charlie Melton. Now, Charlie, you've got a really amazing story about how you first turned up in the Barossa. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, it was a transient stop, you know, almost half a century ago on the way through to Uluru, or Ayers Rock as it was known back then. I went to ag school in New South Wales and a mate and I were doing the usual young man's roustabouting tour of the country and we got to the Barossa on our way to Uluru and didn't move on. <laughs> Simple as that. <laughs> was there anything that happened that... Uh... Well, we picked grapes for Krondorf back in the, in the early 70s, early sort of mid-70s. And at the end of the harvest, they offered us two full-time jobs, one in the cellar and one in the vineyard. And we thought, you know, it's not a bad sort of a place. So, and we were both young, unattached, you know, blokes. So we tossed a coin. Heads Kenny Roach, the mate I was travelling with, who's still here. Uh, he's now retired, but we tossed a coin. And Heads, he took the vineyard job, Tails, I took the cellar job, and that's that's where it started. So we had uh, a six weeks hiatus to get back, wrap up our lives in Sydney and uh, come back. Now that cellar hand job, I believe, was at Saltrums. I was at Crondorf originally, but Peter Peter was Dalgetty Wine Wine Estates owned the group, which was Crondorf, Saltrams, and Stonyfell. So it was part of under Peter Lehman's sort of aegis, if you like. But yeah, so I started off at Crondorf originally in the cellar. And Peter Lehman's been quite a uh, influencing factor in your wine story. Oh, totally, yeah. Um, you know, if you were going to come un, under the influence of uh, of anyone when you know as a, a young, utterly, you know, unversed in the wine industry lad. Uh, Peter Lehman was probably one of the best people to, you know, to, to come under the influence of. So I guess that there was a fair bit of luck in that. You know, I could have I could have gone and worked for other people. Not to say that there weren't also other Barossa heroes at that time, but he was probably, you know, he was up close to the top of the tree or at the top of the tree generally. I think, Charlie, when you talk about that time in the industry, we're talking back in the 80s at a time when the vine pool scheme was, was pretty big news for us, but I think it opened up a lot of opportunities for some people to really grab the bull by the horns and start their own thing. Can you tell us a bit about that time and how there were these real early front runners to what brands we see today? Yeah, I think, you know, the vine pool obviously was a major issue. And, and when you think back on, you know, how little Barossa growers were getting paid for you know for instance Barossa Shiraz which is now obviously a world leading variety you know 
many cases a expensive variety, although again, by world standards, extraordinary value for money. If you're still even at today's prices for a hectare of Barossa vineyard by world standards, it's still incredibly great value. But back then, they were, you know, it was an unviable industry in the in the mid '80s, and the government was paying people to pull vines out. And the Renaissance really started as a result of a group of people getting together, of which Peter and Margaret Lehman were some. James Walk, Brian Sitters was one of the growers I remember. It was a small group of probably 20 people who got together and had a crisis meeting, really, as to how we could turn the fortunes of the Barossa around. And that was at Maggie Beer's pheasant farm, so we had a very pleasant lunch, but it was a very serious <laughs> subject, <laughs> as, as often happens in the Barossa. You know, there's, there's no better way to deal with a serious subject than over a good lunch. And, uh, and the, how it started, the, the concept was that we needed to lift the price points of Barossa wine, so therefore the consequence extra income could go to Barossa growers in terms of higher growth payments. And hence the Barossa Gourmet Weekend was born as one of the vehicles to get the perception of Barossa wine up. And that worked superbly and it coincided with the first visit of the Masters of Wine, which was also critical in uh, you know, in getting the, the image of Barossa lifted. Because they, again, like many people back in those times, they couldn't believe the value, the sheer complexity and quality of the wines for the prices that were being charged. And that reflected right back through the chain, right back to the original growers. Just on that, Charlie, you talk about the master of wine visit. Now, in terms of taking wine to the world, this is a beautiful example of taking the world to the wine. (laughs) Yeah, again, you know, there were a number of initiatives. That was one. And then Hazel Murphy, the late Hazel Murphy, unfortunately now, but she was a, a pocket dynamo. And she was bringing, she bought, oh, I forget how many wine flights out, but really influential journalists, retailers. It was a a clever, clever promotion. It bought the whole spectrum of people who were interested in Barossa wine. The first one had, I think, close to 100 people. They weren't without some issues in the sense that uh, we thought we were being very clever and we would put on a traditional Barossa picnic for them. But... Malcolm Hargy had some property up in the ranges behind Crondorf. Doug Coates, who then was the uh, proprietor of Vintners, decided he was going to do the food, which would, was fantastic. We, we had just the greatest picnic you've seen. We took them up in the back of Utes, sitting on hay bales, which for some of the you know inner London people was a <laughs> bit of an adventure. I don't think they'd ever been in the back of a Ute, let alone sitting on a hay bale Ute, let alone going down some of the tracks on Malcolm's block that was pure sheep country, went swimmingly. Great day. They came back to our place for a few more beers and a round of petonk. The problem being Douglas offered to stay behind and clean up the uh, picnic site, which, you know, ecologically was a sound thing to do. The problem was we got a few beers in, 10 o'clock at night came round, and we were patting ourselves on the back about the success of the day until someone remembered we'd left Douglas up in the ranges by himself. (laughs) And at 10 o'clock at night, it gets pretty cold up on the Barossa Ranges. But our redeeming factor, we left him with a dozen bottles of red. <laughs> so as, as the sun went down and Douglas had to climb further up the slopes to keep warm, he also used uh, about eight of those 12 bottles of Barossa Shiraz to uh, keep his body temperature up. So we did go back and get him. Well, we didn't. We sent... Bob McLean's son, Adam, who's a big strapping lad, just in case Doug was a bit upset, but he wasn't upset. <laughs> he was very mellow. 
Oh, that, that's brilliant. And some of the brands that were involved in those conversations, there was oh, yours, yeah, yeah, you could Peter name, Lehman's. You know, some, Peter Lehman, obviously. Yolumba, some Hallett with Bob. Robert O'Callaghan, Rockford, ourselves. It was it was a kind of a core group, and I'm sure I've probably missed a number of people who who were critical, you know, to that planning of the original Barossa from Cornwall weekend, and then the promotion of Barossa generally. But it was a small sort of core group, and and again, that's when we started buying our first vineyards. You know, we paid the princely sum of forty thousand dollars for twelve acres, um, which I know is breathtakingly, tearfully breathtakingly <laughs> cheap uh, when you look at things these days, but uh, but it was principally to protect a block of old bushfire and Grenache. So, yeah, it, there are key names that keep popping up. And and to be honest, the story's probably been mythologised a bit, but, but it, was a, it was a really grassroots, you know, a local sort of initiative but without any any initial help from any government agencies or any money coming from somewhere. It was Barossa-based. And, uh, and the people in the process sort of pushed it forward. That's excellent. Um, now, you've brought up the topic of Grenache, which is a great segue into the next question. Well, just, Charlie, you know, with Grenache on the table as a topic and looking at how, during that time, it was such an underrated variety and yet look where we are today, where it's held up with such high regard. You've always been a champion for the variety. What made you fall in love with Grenache? I, I wish I could say that there was some great viticultural insight you know, into it, but truly it, it wasn't. We bought the vineyard on Grondorf Road originally, principally just because it was a great site, principally because the vines were quite old, and principally because it only cost me 40 grand. <laughs> so, so, yeah. And then when I made the first wine off that block, we had the wine, and it was such a terrific-looking wine. That's that's what probably opened my eyes initially, the fact that we made the wine off the first vintage that we, we made it. I, you know, I just saw the quality of it, and then, of course, I started thinking about which I'd already known about, but thinking of the, of the great Grenache wines of the world, principally the Southern Rhone, but you know, Spain and other places. And I saw the fact that internationally, Grenache actually was held in high regard in certain parts of the world, and so it gave us back then, as a new winery, a new company starting out, it gave us a unique selling point. So, and you know, and what made it unique was the wine was of such great quality that people had forgotten about over the, the many decades before because, as most people in the Barossa know, it was going into port or sherry um, or bottom-end red wine, if you like. You know, the very f- and not, that I'm, not that Jacobs Creek was bottom-end, but Jacobs Creek, the very first Jacobs Creek, was actually a Grenache blend, a Shiraz Grenache blend, so that's the sort of places it was going to. And was it a hard sell in the beginning, given the fact it wasn't as yeah. knowledgeable as a variety? Yeah. yeah, it took us a while to people, you know, consuming public had never even heard of Grenache you know it's it was just not a I mean the, the if you think about how knowledgeable drinkers are these days and Australian wine drinkers have been the most knowledgeable in the world simply because of the, the fact that pretty much outside of every capital city or most capital cities there's a wine region that they can go and visit and talk to people about wine so they're quite knowledgeable but even they hadn't heard of Grenache really just a variety that needed and that's why we initially related the story back to Chateauneuf de Pup and that sort of thing was to try and give them some context as to you know the quality that can be achieved with this grape so and that of course led to uh, you know led to the Grenache Renaissance as we see it today. Mm. 
And I think, you know, in Barossa, we're lucky in the fact that we've got some of the oldest continuously producing Grenache vines in the world. Obviously, that's a great testament to a lot of the community spirit that was around at the time. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about that sort of philosophy about saving the old vines and what yeah. the sentiment was? Yeah, well, I think, you know, if you, if you look at the history, the tenacity of, you know, the, the growers in the history, the fact that we now have vineyards owned by the seventh generation of the same family is common, you know, well, you know, relatively common. You know, there are, I say, I've been here only nearly 50 years. You know, there would be people who would consider someone who pops into the brosser and stays for a century and then moves on as blowings, <laughs> you know, transients almost. Yeah, my advantage is I, I married well and, you know, Virginia's family have been here for 165 years, so that helped my social standing immensely. But <laughs> So, you know, so that history of longevity is the reason why many of these old vines are still here. These, these people have weathered all sorts of both financial and agricultural ups and downs, so they, they have a belief in what they've been growing for so long and they have a belief in the quality of, of the wines that will result from that fruit. They've seen it all before, you know, they've seen trends come and go, they've seen... We did try planting Pinot Noir back in the 70s and thankfully we got over that <laughs> pretty smartly. Um, <laughs> but they know, they, you know, all these Barossa families know what works well here and they've stuck with it and they've resisted that propensity to sort of follow the fashion, the current fashion. Now that's not to say that some of the some of the younger growers aren't willing to try some really exciting new varieties, which which will which gives us a cutting edge. So we've got a great blend of tradition. We've got a great blend of innovation now with many of the young winemakers coming through. So it's a it's a fantastic blend, and we have the raw material. We have that historical base of great old vineyards to work from. I love the way you talk about the, the history and traditions of the Barossa, Charlie, but also the, the vision that you're seeing now with the younger ones, these generational uh, winemakers coming on board and taking from the old but also embracing the new. Just one question I've got is, have you ever had to do anything a little bit on the absurd side when it comes to taking wine to the world? Oh, I think probably the most you know, well-publicised incident if you like if you want to call it that <laughs> and there are there are probably many some of which purely alleged <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah well, uh, was the uh, you know the great live yabby event of 1996 where uh, we 20 odd winemakers went to london it was again a really fantastic collective effort to take barossa to the world i was in charge of live yabbies uh, we got them sent from sydney by the flying squid brothers who were the you know, seafood merchants of the day. And Aggie Beer was involved in setting the menu and doing the cooking and stuff in Australia House. And unfortunately, there was a glitch in the customs paperwork. So <laughs> Bob and I had to go and talk to the boys of Her Majesty's Customs. And luckily, during the conversation, one of the customs men happened to drop the statement that if they were pets, it would be much easier to get them through customs. Because they were live, they were still live yabbies. Uh, at which point Bob started just naming them Alice, Albert, <laughs> Arthur, Andrew. And of course, you know, I don't think we even got down to B before the custom man just looked at us and signed the paperwork and off we went. So it was, uh, yeah, that was probably the, you know, the strangest thing. And I still remember the name. I I, I was ready to go down to Zachariah, Zebediah and Zoltan if it meant, you know, to get them through. But Brilliant. the custom man moved quickly, yeah. 
Thank Everyone you. should have a pet yabby. <laughs> For me, Charlie, I always remember the time that you told me the story about after being here for quite a number of vintages that you were referred to still as that young guy from Sydney. And I think that it's a reflection on that whole Barossa tradition. How do you see it going now with the uh, new generations? Well, I guess, you know, the Barossa has changed. The, you know, the Barossa now has for some time and has to into the future view itself as a world destination. I mean, probably when I first came here, it was, and it's a, it's a, it's a critical mix. It was a local destination, you know, very, you, you wouldn't say introspective, but certainly, uh, you know, a community that existed uh, much within itself. Obviously now, we're a world famous wine area. So, so the outlook has to be much broader. The people coming in have a much bigger expectation. But having said that, one of the key things that makes wine regions such a fantastic place to visit is that wherever you go in the world, and we, we travel, obviously, because I'm, like everyone else, I'm passionate about drinking wine, not just, not just our own wine, but drinking wine around the world. And when we go to, say, Barolo, the pride and the... the you know, passion that the people in Barola have for what they do is infectious. It's unbelievably infectious. And we now in the Barossa have that same enthusiasm, that same pride in what we do, and that same confidence, you know, that our wines absolutely stand up to any other wines around the world, any other wine area. They're different to Pinot Noir from Burgundy. They're different to Nebbiolo from Barola, but on a quality sense, they are at the same level. They're just different styles of wines. And the community, I think, now understands that, that, that we're not just looking after Adelaide or South Australia or Australia. We're now looking after the world. And that takes a, a different approach in terms of accommodation, food, restaurants. People come here for an immersive experience on all of those things. Wine at the centre of it, of course, but it's built around all many other things that, uh, that follow and come with wine, which are obviously food being the first and obvious choice. Mm, fantastic. Thank you so much, Charlie, for sharing your stories with us. It's really been really entertaining. So thank you so much for thank coming God. in today.